The high places are amazing because they help us reframe the challenge that life can be. But, but the low places are also amazing because they help us reframe our trust in the one who gave us life. So with that in mind, join with me as we come before God in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, we pray this morning for your protection over Jordan Wilson and the baby as she's being induced. And we pray for Corey that, that he might absolutely rest in your provision during this time. We ask for a safe travel for Pastor Dave and Karen to and from the reunion and that this time away will be one of rest and restoration. We rejoice in the beauty and, and the wonder of your creation and, and the joy that that brought to those on the hiking team. We pray for Miss Eileen that her recovery would be speedy and quick. So part your Holy Spirit, Lord, um, uh, on all these situations and on all these folks that they might know your blessing and your provision in the days and weeks ahead. We are so thankful that you are a God who loves. In fact, you're not just a God who loves, but a God who is love. For you, love is not merely something you do, but it's who you are. To be God is to be love and to be the very source of love for all eternity, God. You existed in a relationship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another wholly and perfectly. What a joy it is for us. What comfort it is for us to know that you created us so that we could enter into your love. <clears throat> and what a blessing it is for us to know that even though we rejected that love, you sent Jesus to do the most loving thing possible which was to die for us, and in that way, win us back to yourself, to make us once again lovers of God. And we do love you. Father, we love your Son, and we love the Holy Spirit. We love you, triune God. We know that we love you because we've been loved by you. And so we say with the hymn writer, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. God, this rich and pure love will never end. It's measureless. It's strong. It endures from age to age. So thank you, God, for being who you are. Thank you for being kind and good and gracious and patient and merciful and forgiving. You've done all that and so much more. We could spend all morning pondering all that you are and all that you've done. We could spend all week recounting it and celebrating it. And we wouldn't come close to reaching the end. So we thank you and praise you. <clears throat> no wonder we love to gather here. No wonder we love to sing praises to your name. No wonder we delight in opening your word and hearing you speak. No wonder we can't wait to pour out our hearts to you in prayer. What a good God you are. You alone are worthy of our worship. So, Father, we thank you for all the ways you've expressed your goodness to us this week. 
You've forgiven us for our every sin. You've provided for our every need. You became human to serve us in ways that we don't deserve and in truth can hardly take in. Without you, we lack all good things, but with you, we lack no good thing. And so if we only have you, we're rich beyond measure. The greatest treasures of this world are nothing, Lord, nothing compared to you. And so, God, we long for this to be a church that shows the world Jesus Christ. We yearn for his loving service to be seen in us, to be experienced through us. So we ask this so that all those who are weary and need rest, all those who mourn and need comfort, all those who lost and need direction, all those who feel worthless and need to discover their true worth in you, and all who understand that they've sinned before you and wonder if if you could still care about them, we ask this so that they might know you. We pray that this morning all of us would be aware of our deep need for you and help us to be aware that you are big enough and strong enough and powerful enough and consistent enough to meet our every need as we need it. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name and all of God's people said, Amen. So this morning... I'd like you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Hear the good news as it comes to us from Mark's gospel. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralyzed, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, what does this mean that he speaks like that? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned thus, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. Authority on earth. To forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. If you'd bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we want to know you. We want to know you well. We want to draw close to you and... And rest in your presence. 
and live to your delight. And so, Father, break the bread of your word and feed us richly this morning that we might live to your glory now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Last week, after unpacking the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, Chad issued a twofold challenge to us. He said, do you remember? Serve someone you don't what? Serve someone you don't know. And a second challenge, serve someone you don't... So how'd you do with that? For, 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 all, of, for all, all of you who, uh, who thought that was easy, raise your hands. If you thought that was hard, raise your hands. I'm not going to ask how many of you didn't do it. But, but, but in a church I worship at as a child, they had what was called a sinner's bench. We'd all be sitting up there, right? Okay. Just, just saying. Chad's challenge could have been more extreme. Could have been much more extreme. Remember the Samaritan's action. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. There's no archaeological evidence of an inn in the wilderness between Jerusalem and Jericho during Jesus' day. The Samaritan would have taken the beaten man either to Jericho or to Jerusalem to find an inn. These were predominantly Jewish communities. And in so doing, the Samaritan placed his own life at risk. Anyone hearing the story would expect the Samaritan to leave the injured man at the gates of the town and go. For him to carry a wounded Jew over the back of his riding animal into the midst of a Jewish community would have exposed the Samaritan to community vengeance even though he was helping the man. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. There was no trust between them. Chad could have challenged you to serve someone you hate at the risk of your life. Do I have your attention now? As Jesus presents it, this business of neighboring well takes us into deep and dangerous waters. In high school, there was a time when I was angry, rebellious, and headed for really serious trouble. My anger came out sideways, and that created a host of problems. At that moment, I was invited on a Christian retreat by a friend, a girl who'd captured my interest. She doggedly invited me. She cajoled me. She pushed me. She encouraged me to go. She was annoyingly persistent, and I wouldn't have gone, except I was really interested in her, right? Do do you understand the complexity of how God works, how the Holy Spirit works in our, our convoluted human lives? She was tenaciously unquenchable in her desire for me to go on that weekend. She simply wouldn't take no for an answer. 
And so in the end, I gave in, but I only went on the retreat because it was a state and a half away from immediate parental supervision, and I was looking forward to time with her. But God ambushed me on that weekend. The relationship I discovered wasn't one with Bobby. Instead, on a Young Life retreat, I heard gospel proclaimed in, of all places, Atlantic City, New Jersey, at the Claridge Hotel, which is now a casino. In no way, shape, or form was I looking for a relationship with God. I was angry with God because in my young mind, he had failed to intervene and block the move my family made away from friends, teams, neighborhood, and school at the behest of Dad's work. On the Saturday night of that weekend, I was brought into Christ's presence and heard the answer to four critical questions. Who made us? And to whom are we accountable for our lives? What is our human problem? Are we in trouble and why? What is God's solution to the problem? Put another way, how has God acted to save us from it? And how can I come to be included in God's offered salvation? Or what makes this good news for me, not just for someone else? I heard it all. God, my situation, the solution to the jam in which my sin had placed me and the response required for me. Knowing I needed forgiveness, I accepted God's gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Now, you see, my friend did everything in her physical power to get me into the presence of Jesus Christ. She'd gone beyond that to bring me before God the Father spiritually in prayer. And then she trusted the Holy Spirit to work at the appropriate time in the kairos of the chronos, right? The critical moment of clock time. And in an appropriate way, a way consistent with God's character. Nobody coerced me, right? right? I, was, I, I was in that moment open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And as a result... The Holy Spirit did the work that only God could do in my heart, mind, and spirit. God had to do the soul work that I so desperately needed. We call this tenacious friendship. This kind of tenacious friendship, brotherly love. The Greek word is phileo. Philadelphia, although if you watch on, on sports, watch sports events on TV, Philadelphia doesn't always look particularly loving, but... But that's, that's the root of that name. It's the love which grows out of a relationship when one is, is known and loved over time. It's a love committed in season and out. Phileo gets practical and personal. It asks, how does this person need to be loved in this moment? And then it does that. Which brings us to this morning's story, and I'm, I'm glad that it's a favorite of Jordan. It's a favorite of mine. Um, Jesus had been teaching and healing in Galilee. Now he's back in Capernaum. Word of mouth of significant events spreads quickly in any age. It did so at this time. So when word gets out that Jesus is back in town, the crowds gather. 
so many gathered together that the house in which he was preaching and teaching was packed and the area around the entrance of the home was jammed with people, the curious, the needy, the spiritually hungry, and the fearful. Four more people arrived, having heard of and maybe having actually witnessed Jesus' healing. They come carrying their friend on a pallet because he's paralyzed. In the Middle East at that time, houses were built <coughs> excuse me, with stairs up the back of the house to the flat roof, which was surrounded by a parapet. It was common for people to sleep on the roof during the hot season of the year. The, the crush of the crowd out in front of the house is so intense that it drives the four friends to carry their paralyzed friend up onto the roof. They adapt because they will not be deterred from getting their friend to Jesus. Now, those flat roofs were built in this way. Heavy cross timbers spaced three feet apart provided the main support as they spanned the width of the house, right? So the house is narrower this way, longer this way. The timbers ran across that shorter space, the width, spaced three feet apart. Smaller limbs were laid across the timbers, but perpendicular to them. And and they were stacked together and packed to a depth of a foot. All right? So so do you have the, the, the sense of how substantial this is? And then on top of those branches, to a depth of another foot, is a packed layer of clay. That's the roof of a house during Jesus' day. That's the surface the four friends laid their paralyzed friend upon at the head of the stairs. But they don't stop with this maneuver. Blocked by the thickness of the roof, they find a way because they've got to get their friend to Jesus. They calculate where Jesus is located below and proceed to deconstruct the roof, always guaranteed to endear you to the homeowner. Right? And so they remove the hardened clay. They remove the branches. They create a rectangular opening three feet by approximately six feet to lower their friend through. Now, these four friends aren't just trying to get their friend to Jesus. They're moving heaven and earth to get it to happen. Imagine the stir in the room below when dust starts to sift down through the roof. And then followed by debris, right? Because I promise you this wasn't a clean, neat process. Suddenly the sun's shining in until it's blocked out by the pallet being lowered down to rest before Jesus. The four friends are tenacious in their determination to bring their friend to Jesus. Nothing, nothing will get between them and the completion of their task. They're unstoppable in their focus and creative in their problem solving. And now having done everything they can, they wait and see and trust. Jesus notices. I mean, how could he not notice? With a paralyzed man lying before him, that the text notes, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their complete 
confidence in his ability to heal. Faithful Jews of that time believed that healing involved both physical and spiritual dimensions. Remember Psalms 41.4. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Bill Lane says, healing is the gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are the tokens of sin and death at work in a person's life. Jesus observes their actions, which can only flow from one source. Faith in him as God's servant and faith in God as the source and fount of any true healing and restoration. Further, Jesus speaks to the truth that our main problem in life isn't suffering, it's sin. At times, all of us build our lives, build our identities on something other than Jesus. We need healing and salvation. And in that moment, Jesus proclaims forgiveness. Now, this is where this gets sweet for me as a student of the Word. The account continues... Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees, the scribes, meet Jesus' statement with doubt. They should be celebrating God's work among them, but instead they stay seated and criticize him. In their minds, only God can heal Jesus' words, son, your sins are forgiven, could be blasphemy. But I need you to hear that could be. After all, the Old Testament is clear. Only God can forgive. But prophets could proclaim God's forgiveness on his behalf. The scribes and Pharisees are rejecting this. Do you hear that? They don't consider Jesus a prophet, right? Regardless of of what he's already done, At this early point in the story. So, what does Jesus say? I forgive you. Nope, that's not what he says. He says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees protest Jesus' authority to speak as a prophet or, in their minds, his assumption of God's authority. But do you hear the ambiguity in Jesus' words? Now, Jesus responds in a really rabbinic way. This is sweet. He asks a counter question of his questioners. He does this all the time, and I love it. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. We might think it easier to pronounce forgiveness. How about you? Which is easier? Forgiveness or healing? Which are you laying your weight on in that moment? All right? So Jesus now has him in a bind. He puts the pinch on their unbelief, right? Because he challenges their presupposition that he casually offers cheap grace. He says, 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There you have it. And immediately he rose, picked up his bed, and went out before them. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus confronts their critical doubt. There was a little short title in there. The phrase, Son of Man, comes to us most prominently from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. There, it refers to the promised Messiah. It goes like this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. There it is. And he came to the Ancient of Days, Almighty God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What does that sound like? It sounds to me like the book of Revelations, right? Jesus uses a title from the Old Testament that spoke to his particular authority. Then to make his point that he has both the prophetic authority to forgive and more authority than that, he heals the paralyzed man lying at his feet. All scribes, um, Pharisees, everybody gathered there are amazed. They glorify God. They, They can't help but glorify God. Jesus' love goes deeper and is greater, you see. His love is agape, sacrificial love. Both phileo, brotherly love, and the sacrificial agape love that Jesus displayed in his death on a cross and of which he speaks in John fifteen twelve, our memory verse. Both are needed. Apart from being expressed in our lives, we don't properly image Jesus Christ. Put another way. Phileo loves who God loves. Agape loves the way God loves at uncountable cost. Agape creates value in what is loved or in who is loved. It creates value because it always comes at a price. Mike, if I lay down my life to preserve yours, to secure yours... How much have I demonstrated my love for you? 100%. Exactly. Right? And this is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. The love of God personified. It's the way God loves. God created us out of His love for His beloved. This type of love always begins as a choice, an act of will, although feelings are involved. It always comes at a price, but here's the twist. The lover pays the cost for the beloved. The price the one loved could never, ever pay. Paul says it like this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. The full extent of God's love, the full measure of God's goodness, 
are witnessed in this truth. God loved us when we became unlovable. When there was no merit in us. John said it. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation, to pay the price for our sins. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Look, that's, that's true for me. It's true for you. The proof of God's love is Jesus Christ, who died so that we might live. Each aspect, each facet of God's love is displayed in him. How does, how does Paul say it? God's love is unstintingly patient. It's always flawlessly kind. It never boasts or envies. It always puts others first. Jesus' love isn't irritated or inappropriately angry. His love always serves and takes the lowest, most humble position. He always forgives, even from the cross. Only his love has the depth and power to bear, believe, hope, and endure all things. The Holy Spirit is given to us to enable us, us, to live and love in exactly this way. If you need to discover it for yourself, read Romans 8, but especially verses 31 through 39. Paul says that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus commands us to love like this. Remember the memory verse we said back at the beginning? In that verse, Jesus uses very precise wording. This is my commandment, that you love agape, there's that word, that you love one another as I've loved you. And he uses that phrasing to communicate three things. First, that it's the commandment. The Greek wording is telling. It literally reads, this is the commandment, the my. That's how the Greek is phrased. By placing the and my After this is the commandment, Jesus emphasizes its priority over every other commandment. Second, he's clear. It is his, Jesus' commandment. Third, the love that we are given is given to us so that we can love others as we've been loved. If God's love for us doesn't go horizontal, if it isn't directed towards others, We haven't correctly grasped God's love. Now, it's a hard command. It's not always easy to have a heart for someone else, especially when that individual is difficult to love. Anybody here know some difficult-to-love people? Welcome to the party. It's infinitely harder to love that person sacrificially, laying down your life for them, when they will not do the same for you. But let's be honest here. I suspect the Holy Spirit sometimes has difficulty finding a heart in us, which is why Jesus sends him to us. Ezekiel, speaking for God, said it in chapter 36, verse 26, and I'll give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There is work that must be done in us if God's love is to be expressed through us. This love is real and tangible. Remember John's words in 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Please note, John uses the word Jesus used for love, agape. He chose it because he had experienced it. There it is. There it is. Now, hear the good news in all of this. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Did you catch that? There's a promise implicit in it. You can love this way out of the resource of Jesus' heart for you. You can love as tenaciously as the four friends. You can love as sacrificially as Jesus himself did. If you and I can trust his heart for us, then we'll be able to practice that heart for others. There's an American idiom, pass it on. There was a a little song back in the day to that effect, right? It only takes a spark. Right? It mirrors the grammar of this sentence. The Greek word kathos means not only as, which is God's standard, Above us, but also from God's source, the Holy Spirit within us that flows out of us. And there's a continuing sense to it. You might say it this way. We've been loved and are being loved out of this vast and living resource poured out on us by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And, and, and because we've been loved and are being loved out of this vast and living resource, we can love. And we pass on the undeserved and unmerited love God has shown us and is showing us to, an undeserved, to undeserving and meritless people around us. That promise gives us more heart in the moment as that heart is needed. This is what Jesus did for us. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul went on in Ephesians 2.12 to say, Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Can't get any plainer. Jesus reminds the eleven that night, the night of his arrest, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. We must always remember that Jesus gave up his life for enemies. Let's be clear. Jesus gave up his life for enemies. All those who had run far from God as a result of sin. All those whose sins he paid the full price for. Now imagine, Jesus declared himself to be our friend. And what a friend he is. He died for you and me at the very time we were enemies opposed to his love and work. That's the reality of it. That's the sharp truth of it. That's what I heard that night in Atlantic City, New Jersey. 
Here's where obedience to Jesus' command becomes costly. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Remember Jesus' charge to the lawyer last week? Go and do likewise. Jesus is not only the ultimate friend of those who receive his sacrifice, he is our commanding Lord. It is his right and prerogative to give us commands. In the same way, it is his right to give us undeserved grace. The surprise is that we as people get to be the friend of someone who is so high and lifted above us. So, if we want to be the friends of the one who brought us from sin to holiness, from from death to life, from self-focus to other focus, we must obey his commands. It all begins here, but it begins with a really sweet twist. We obey not because we ought to, not because we must, but because we want to. And we want to because we really understand and have taken in and appropriated and are now committed to living out of the work that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I mean, how can you not want to share a gift like that? How can you not want to offer to someone else what you've received so freely, so unstintingly? It's an amazing thing. And so our obedience flows from deep gratitude for all that He's done for us. And even more, it flows from His heart, which is now ours by God's grace through the gift of Christ and the work of of the Holy Spirit. The way of obedience is to live by the new heart God has given us, His own. That means we live sacrificially with our friends and neighbors and enemies, doing whatever it takes, even risking our very lives to bring them before Jesus. He alone can save. He alone can forgive. He alone can heal and restore hearts and minds that have been damaged by our fallen world. In John 15, Jesus continues. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master's doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Do you hear it? Our status has changed. One service, the servants, the Greek word is uh, doulos, which actually means slaves, Right? Once, once servants, we are now friends by grace as a gift. We haven't done anything to deserve it, haven't earned it. He tells us that the confirmation of the gift is this that all, of I, all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. Those few words have great meaning. Jesus tells us that He has the full revelation of God and has passed it on to us. Think about it. We know what God wants. Drink that in for a minute. We know what God wants. We know His heart. We can be utterly confident that every last thing that is pertinent to our salvation has been revealed to us. Further, thanks to the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can rest in the knowledge that we are able to live this new life out of God's sacrificial love right now. Worship team, come on up.
brothers and sisters, friends, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, giving us what we need as we need it so that we can make a friend, bring that friend so that we can be a friend and make a friend and bring that friend to Jesus Christ. Now, hear my challenge. My Chad challenged you last week. I'm going to challenge you. So, who are you going to love like that this week? Who are you going to love that sacrificially? Who are you going to love that tenaciously so that you get them before Jesus Christ, to the glory of God. Let it be so. And all God's people said, Amen.